Welcome to Beth Kun and our study of Yehoshua, or Joshua. I'm Tim Pell, and I'm glad you're here. Now, I need to acknowledge that the beginning of this study has been a little disjointed, and many of you may already be a few chapters into Joshua in your home fellowship discussions. That's perfectly fine. I promise that from here on out, I'll be progressing through the book of Joshua one chapter at a time. This week, we'll finally be in chapter 1, but not before we review the record we have of Joshua in the Torah. In other words, what do we know about Joshua before the book of Joshua? I'll be going relatively quickly through each of the 12 portions in which he is mentioned, sharing what I think each instance says about him, if anything at all. Then I'll share an insight into the very first verse of Joshua chapter 1. And finally, I'll hand it over to David to bless us once again with what he's been learning. So, what do we know so far about Joshua? There are 12 Torah portions in which Joshua is mentioned. So let's go through each of them briefly and see what we learn. And for that, I'm putting on my glasses. The first Torah portion we find him in is the portion Beshalach, Exodus 17. Uh, And for those of you who do write notes down, I'll make sure to reference this slowly so you can write down these chapters and verses. So that's Beshalach, Exodus 17, verses 9, 10, 13, and 14. Uh, This is the portion that uh, follows the events of the Exodus, where um, they they cross over or cross through the Red Sea. Um, They sing the the song at the sea, uh, and they're now facing uh, no drinking water before before actually facing Amalek. So here's verse uh, 8 through 10 of Exodus 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us. Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as as Moses had told him and fought with Amalek. And then down to 13. uh, Then Joshua weakened Amalek, putting their people to the sword. So here we see right out the gate, that we know Joshua is a well-trusted and respected um, ally or assistant to to Moses. He's tasked with a very, very important uh, job of choosing men going out and fighting against Amalek. This is their first enemy uh, out of captivity. So so we we discover that right right out the gate. We also see that he's unflinchingly obedient to Moses, Um, in having been asked to do this great thing, which I'm sure he has absolutely no experience with. Um, Israel has just come out of captivity, and Joshua doesn't know, you know, a bucket of sand from a bucket of water or something. He, he, He doesn't know how to do this, but he's asked to do it, and he does it unflinchingly and apparently very well. Um, yeah, so he, he was a very trusted ally or assistant to, to Moses. Okay, so that's Beshalach. Moving on to the second portion we find him in is Mishpatim, which is Exodus 24, verse 13. And I'll go ahead and read that, Exodus 24, 13. Uh, I'll start in verse 12. Adonai said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there. I will give you the stone tablets with the Torah and the mitzvot I have written on them so that you can teach them. Moses got up, also 
Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up onto the mountain of God. So two things here. This is the first time Moses, or Joshua is referred to as Mesheret Moshe, Moses's assistant. And we'll see that play out many times in the portions we look at today. We also see that Joshua goes wherever Moses goes. He is a, 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 an excellent disciple. He's covered in the dust of his teacher, of his master, and he goes wherever he goes. He goes up the mountain with Moses, though it, it is likely he didn't go with him on the final leg um, of the trip. So he's constantly with Moses through all of this. So we see those two things here in this portion. Moving on to the third portion of Kitisa, which is Exodus 32, verse 17, and uh, chapter 33, verse 11. And I will read uh, the, first, the first few verses of, of this here, 32, 15 through 18 of Exodus. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets inscribed on both sides, on the front and on the back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, It sounds like the war, it sounds like war in the camp. He, Moses, answered, That is neither the clamor of victory nor the wailings of defeat. What I hear is the sound of people singing. Now, this, of course, is Joshua. Uh, hearing what would later be discovered as the people worshiping a golden calf. And what I find interesting here is that this tells us about how perceptive Joshua is to spiritual things. Though it is singing, he hears, he hears uh, war. Um, and I believe what he's actually hearing is spiritual warfare that Moses didn't quite pick up on. Both of them are correct. Joshua heard war. And Moses heard singing, but the, the nature of the, the two things put together make it a, a full picture. But we see here that he's very perceptive spiritually. This is the first time in, in this um, portion later on in 33.11 where it says, Adonai would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Then he would return to the camp. But the young man who was his assistant, uh, Joshua son of Nun, never left the inside of the tent. This is the first time he's called son of Nun, uh, which he'll be then called many more times throughout the Torah. Um, something interesting here that I'm going to talk about a little bit at the end, after we've gone through all these portions, is the tent of meeting and his title as Moses' assistant, his sharate, uh, uh, Moshe, uh, assistant of Moses. Uh, it has they're related the kind of servant that he is to Moses and the reason why he didn't leave the tent of meeting uh, I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more detail here in a moment uh, but one thing this does I think highlight is that Joshua's priority if he's going to prioritize anything over his time spent near and close to his master Moses is that he's going to spend more time in the tent of meeting uh, to be closer to God. Um, so even though Moses went in and out from the tent of meeting to the people, Joshua stayed there at the tent of meeting. All right, moving on to the fourth Torah portion where we find Joshua. 
It's in Numbers 11. This is Beha al Teka, Numbers 11, 28. Uh, here, and I'm not going to uh, read through any of the passage. Um, I'm not going to do that for every one we look at. But in this passage, we see um, where Joshua is, uh, it's said that he has been uh, Moses' assistant from a youth, from youth up which makes sense uh, because if back in Beshalach at the, at the beginning of this um, little search we've done, we see that he's already a trusted advisor or, or assistant to Moses in going out and finding men to fight Amalek. We, we see here that it must have been that he was, fr- it was from a young man that he uh, was close to and had a working relationship with Moses. And, we, and it, it is described here in this portion. Um, we also see that Joshua is zealous to protect Moses' reputation and authority. There's a passage here where it seems as though Moses' authority is questioned, and Joshua raises his hand and tells him to stop, make sure this stops happening. The uh, Eldad and Medad um, are prophesying in the camp. Um, and then Mos- Moses replies, are you zealous to protect me? I wish that all Adonai's people were prophets. Anyway, etc. So you see that he's a defender of his teacher of his master's reputation and authority. Okay, so that's four. Number five, Shelach, Numbers 13, verse 16, and chapter 14, verses 6, 30, and 38. Here is the episode of the spies, um, a very seminal moment in Israel's history. Um, And there's a couple things we can learn about Joshua in particular from this. First of all, we see in verses 8 and then 16 that his name, his given name, is actually Hoshea, the son of Nun. And that Moses changes his name to Yehoshua, uh, to to, to Yehosha. But Yehoshua? Yehoshua. (laughs) Hoshea to Yehoshua. Boy, say that five times fast. All right, so Yehoshua which I believe implies another kind of closeness where Moses knows Hoshea well enough to be able to give him a new name, uh, maybe further demonstrating his understanding of Yehoshua's essence of, of who he is, right? So that, that's what we can, we can glean from that. Another is down in verses 6 through 9, and I'll go ahead and read this. This, of course, is uh, where Joshua and Caleb are um, giving the good report, and it goes like this. So Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Yefune, from the detachment that had reconnoitered the land, tore their clothes and said to the whole community of Israel, the land we pass through in order to spy it out is an outstandingly good land. If Adonai is pleased with us, then we will bring, and he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Just don't rebel against Adonai. And don't be afraid of the people living in the land. We'll eat them up. Their defense has been taken away from them, and Adonai is with us. Don't be afraid of them. What I see here is a, a courageousness and righteousness of, of Joshua in that he trusts his ability to read the situation. He goes in with Caleb. They see the exact same land that these other ten spies did, and they did not go along with the negative report, despite their probably being lots of peer pressure to do so, they said, no, this, this, is, this is the truth of it. Um, I mean, th- think about it for yourself. If you 
were coming to present your findings about something, and more than half of the people you were with said it was very bad, would you question whether your report of it being very good was accurate? I certainly would. But he was courageous enough to say, no, absolutely not. It is a good, good land. So he's courageous in that as well. Okay, moving on to our sixth portion. This is Pincus, Numbers 26, verse 65, and chapter 27, verses 18 and 22. Uh, Here in verse 18, uh, he is described as a spiritual man. And this, of course, is the passage or the portion where he is selected by God to be Moses' successor. Uh, In verse 18, it says, Adonai said to Moses, Take Yehoshua, the son of Nun, a spiritual man, and lay your hand on him. Uh, And so this, of course, we already knew this. If we take the the instance of of Joshua hearing the people singing as uh, him, him perceiving warfare, I think we can not be surprised by his being described as a spiritual man here because he was very astute and and perceptive to what was going on spiritually for the people back then. All right, number seven, Matot. This is Numbers, chapter 32, verses 12 and 28. Numbers 32, 12 and 28. Um, And I'll go ahead and read uh, chapter 32, verses 11 and 12. None of the people aged 20 or more who came out of Egypt will see the land I swore to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov because they haven't followed me unreservedly except Caleb and Joshua because they have followed Adonai unreservedly. This, of course, is the consequence of of the the report of the ten spies. Um, So we see here that he is unreserved in in his following of Adonai like his his unflinching obedience to uh to Moses his teacher his master um yeah okay so that's that's it for Matot Masay is the next one in numbers chapter 34 verse 17 here we see um uh, similar to the, actually the previous portion where he's put on the same level as the the priest and the tribal leaders uh and if you think about it he's been with Moses from his youth. So he has worked up the ranks, you could say, uh, being a faithful uh, and good student and disciple of Moses this entire time. And now he's on the level, uh, shares a level of Kohen, Joshua, and the tribal leaders uh, here in verse 17 of Numbers 34. And then also actually in the previous portion, verse 28 of chapter 32. That's Masay. So moving on to Devarim. This is the first portion of Deuteronomy. Um, This we see Joshua in Deuteronomy 1, verse 38, and chapter 3, verse 21. Here we see him referred to now not as Moses' assistant, uh, but but one who stands before you, Ahmed Panim. You could say this this is... indicating he's no longer simply a servant of Moses, but he is, he is graduating to something greater. Even though he's been selected by God, he hasn't quite been installed or ordained to be the leader for Israel yet. But he is now the Amid, uh, Ahmed Panim. Uh, 
Um, in your translations, though, it may still say assistant. So here's chapter 1, verse 37. Also, because of you, Adonai was angry with me and said, you too will not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, your assistant, he will go in there. So encourage him because he will be, or he will enable Israel to take possession of it. That where it's translated your assistant, and you may have something else there, that is actually Ahmed Panim, which is one who stands before you, uh, which is different than a servant. Moving on. Portion number 10, where we find Joshua, is Ve'et Hanan. We find that in Deuteronomy 3, verse 28. Here, Moses is building up Joshua in the eyes of Israel, recounting how Adonai had selected him to succeed Moses. The 11th portion we find Joshua in is Vayalech, which is Deuteronomy 31, uh, verses 3, 7, 14, and 23. In this portion, this is where Joshua is given uh, the instruction to be strong and courageous, right? Um, And what's interesting, and I talked about this a little bit when we did the study on Vayelech not long ago, is that he's told two slightly different things in that way. Moses first tells him to be strong and courageous and go with the people. Adonai, though, tells him to be strong, courageous, and bring the people. Both of them are, are good. Uh, you know, the one is good advice from, from Moses, and the other, of course, is instruction from God, so it's going to be good, of course. But what Moses is trying to do, I believe, is tell, Moses, is tell Joshua, don't lead like I led. I pushed and I dragged these people along in a time that they needed it. Uh, but now, as their leader going into the land, you should be walking alongside them. Go with them. Go beside them. Um, but yet still, God instructs Joshua to, to bring them, to take them in. Uh, because he, of course, is a picture of Messiah, of Yeshua, who goes before us. And that, that is a sign of a good leader. So that's what we, that's what we see here in this portion. And finally, in the last Torah portion where we find Joshua, it's Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, which is the portion, the last portion of the Torah, Vizot Habracha. Here we see uh, where Joshua is described as being full of the spirit of wisdom, the Ruach Kokma, and that he is heeded by the people who trust him. So this is a good place to be as a segue out of the Torah, and into the book of Joshua where he is leading them into the land. Uh, again, I hope that was helpful, helpful for you. If you need to go back and, and write down these references, I encourage you to go back and look at all these yourself too and dig in a little deeper on, on these. Uh, and also there's something interesting to be understood about uh, him being called the son of Nun uh, that I challenge you to, to figure out and find out and maybe send me a comment or an email about what you found there. Because it's no, it isn't. It isn't. It isn't simply a matter of lineage, though it is that. Uh, there is some other message there about him being uh, Yehoshua ben Nun. Okay, so now let's turn to Joshua chapter one, verse one. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to recite the first verse of the book and the verse that marks the end of Joshua's life, found near the end of the book. In Chapter 24, verse 29, okay? First verse, 
And then the last verse that is the end of his life. All right, Joshua 1.1. 1, 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of Adonai, Adonai said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Okay, skipping ahead to 24.29. After this, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Adonai, died. He was 110 years old. In the Torah, Joshua is referred to as Moses' attendant, or assistant, or servant. The word here, sherate, uh, uh, Moshe, the, the servant of Moses, is mostly used in the Torah for one who serves in a sacred capacity, in the temple, the holy place, the sanctuary, the tent of meeting. These were all sacred duties related to the house of the king. Joseph, for example, was a charrette of Pharaoh. In Genesis 39.4, we read, Joseph pleased Pharaoh as he served him, and his master appointed him manager of his household. He entrusted all his possessions to Joseph. This is the sacred service in the house of the king. That is how Joshua is described. Moses, however, is called Eved Adonai, slave of God. While a sherat has his own life outside the duties of the king's house, a slave has no possessions, no authority, no legal status, no will, no anything. He is only an extension of his master, to whom he belongs. In almost every other context, this position is a degrading one. However, to be a slave to Adonai is the most transcendent position. The last shall be first and the first last, right? Like Moses before him, Joshua wasn't called a slave of Adonai, Evet Adonai, until after he died, after he had lived a life of holy demonstration. Truly, only after a life lived can we see the whole picture of and an individual's reason for living. Let's all strive to create the evidence supporting the life of servitude Adonai, with every waking breath. In any given moment, ask yourself, am I doing this in service of the king or in service of myself or some other master? The sages say that Moses was the sun and Joshua the moon. Like any good student or disciple, Joshua reflected the light of his teacher, his master. He was not the source of the light. He merely reflected it. So what is the light? Well, it's the Word, right? It's the Torah. It's Yeshua. John 8.12 says, I am the light of the world. Moses wasn't the source of that light either. So if Moses was like the sun to his disciple Joshua, Joshua's disciples would see him as the sun as well, and they reflect the light he shone to those around them. And on and on it goes. Thus began with Moses and Joshua the succession of light that has continued on to this day. There's a song we sing in our congregation that I'm sure many of you know. It's based on Matthew 5, 16, and it's called You Are the Light of the World. And the lyrics go like this. I'm not going to sing it because my voice is a little hoarse. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before all men, that they may see your deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. The lamp is the mitzvah. The light 
it shines is the Torah. So the lamp is the good deeds. The light it shines is the light of Torah, the light of truth, the light of the word, the light of Yeshua. So in our lives of service to the king, as we strive to one day be called Mesheret Adonai, a slave of God, are we reflecting the light of him undiminished? Is the light that we give as bright as it was when we received it? It's not our light. It is the light. So let's all keep our souls as reflective as possible, so to speak, and do the will of the king. And hopefully one day, as I'm sure Joshua and Moses heard, we will hear our master say, well done, good and faithful servant. All right, that's it for my part. And with that, I now turn it over to David. Hello, everybody. Let's begin today by reviewing once again. I keep reviewing because review, to view again, is vital. So these ideas are somewhat abstract and very interconnected. So it's good to hear them over and over from slightly different angles. We've been connecting together, one, the spiritual seasons of the year, with two, the Torah portions, and three, the book of Joshua. And really a fourth, to be honest with you, too, because um, we've been looking at Yeshua through the different ideas the calendar and the portions are bringing up. So really you could include a fourth there, which is Yeshua. Um, In the last two videos, we've talked about how this time of year, the fall, is akin to a period of early adulthood. It's a whole new beginning. There's a newness on the Nissan side of the calendar, which is the newness of rebirth. But on this side of the calendar in the fall, the newness is that of entering into adulthood and setting out of your parents' house and making your own home. And that especially means marriage. So I'm not going to be able to escape that topic. (laughs) For many of us, um, young adulthood is also the point of marriage uh, when we leave the earlier life behind and find our deeper identity within that marriage. In the fall, God is giving us just the right environment for the bride to step up to start being the bride. In the end, if we have the eyes to see it, what we're being given the chance to do in this season is to take one more step upward in the self-sacrificial life, the life of service, whatever that looks like in our situation. I'm sure the applications are as varied as there are individuals in the world. Uh, But whatever it is for you, it might be swimming into view now, and you're seeing it and coming to terms with what it would mean to serve in that way. Uh, We frequently have demands and requests put on us. Now, though, is a season to be especially discerning, to ask, is this request that is coming to me lining up with my unique identity and purpose in this world? Because the enemy would have us running around exhausted. Uh, But that's not God's way. He gives rest to his people. On the other hand, when you do see that a service track before you actually fits you, 
you must consider that this is God's will and be brave to follow that track wherever it takes you. This is a time for discerning and filtering and then embracing. If you release the old life or the hoped-for life and instead embrace what God is bringing to you, you are free to fully enter into that new life. And God will bless you with growth and fertility as you grapple with the new you and the new situation. And you will experience a kind of deeper intimacy with him through it all. If instead you try to hang on to what is known and comfortable, you will grow fat and end up choking on that life. And you will stumble. And your growth in that season will be stunted until he humbles you and gets you back on the upward path. So, Beth Takoon, it's easy to see that we as a community are being called to this same path of higher service to each other in this season just by virtue of being called to the home fellowship structure. Frankly, it is a higher calling to open our homes and to gather together in smaller groups where we share more of ourselves with others, where we actually know each other's names. And um, we're stepping up. We are stepping up. We are surrendering the old Beth Takoon in order to embrace the new life of higher service he has called us to. In some ways, it seems contrary to common sense what we're doing in releasing the wonderful thing God has given us um, as we respond to the vision he has spoken to us. Beth Takoon was thriving in the old way. Or was it? Was it maybe just getting fat in the biblical sense of being blessed and growing fat? Anyway, thankfully, we don't have to understand everything in order to simply obey. Whoever said obedience to God is going to make perfect sense to us. Although, in truth, the wisdom of the path we're on is becoming clearer and clearer as each week passes. This week's Torah portion, Sarah, completes the story of the first Jews, Abraham and Sarah. So let's turn to that portion now. As we begin, let me point out again that in each portion, one or two of the themes we have been talking about related to the spiritual season seems to come forward and stand out, at least for me. In Bereshit, it's new beginnings. We also see the theme of the bride begin in the first portion with the creation of Eve. In Noach, the theme of cleansing jumps out, the cleansing of the earth. In Lech Lecha, it's about discovering identity through the walk of faith. Go to yourself, Avram. In Vayera, we see Avraham interacting quite a bit with the peoples around him. So we're beginning to see a theme of being the light to the world, a theme connected to Hanukkah. And two, we have the Akedah at the end of Vayera, which speaks powerfully of the need to release the old in order to receive and embrace the new and better. And that particular theme of releasing the old and embracing the new is one of the themes we see strongly in Chayesara, the life of Sarah. The main events in this Torah portion are the death of Sarah, Abraham's purchase of the cave of Machpelah as a burial place, Abraham's servant 
going to get a bride for Isaac. The listing of Abraham's descendants through his second wife, Keturah, Abraham's death, and finally, a listing of the descendants of Ishmael. By far, the story of finding a bride for Isaac, Rebekah, is the longest single section in the portion. With the death of Sarah um, and the story about Rebekah, we can say that Chaye Sarah is very much about the theme of the bride, which we have been connecting so closely to this season, right? The bride stepping up to be the bride. The new bride who leaves the old life behind is who we are introduced here to. So we can immediately see how the portion is fitting into the season of the year. And lest we think this theme of the bride is of lesser importance in the Torah, let me point out that Hayasara is very near the middle of the book of Genesis. We know that the middle is where you tend to find the backbone of the thing, like the shamash, the central candle of the menorah that everything else branches off of. The theme of the bride is right there near the middle of Genesis, this, this Torah portion of Chayasara. Let's notice, too, that Abraham doesn't, doesn't have a portion named after him. Isaac, Jacob, not even Joseph have portions named after them, though Joseph's story is maybe the longest in the Torah. Of the patriarchs and matriarchs, it's only Sarah who has this honor. Sarah is the first Jewish bride. Can you see how important this topic of the bride is in Scripture? And when we're reading the story of this betrothal, we're struck by the fact that nearly the entire story is strangely repeated, taking up a lot of space in the Torah. The Torah tells us the story, then we hear it again as we overhear Abraham's servant repeat the whole story up to that point, to Rebecca's family. So the Torah is emphasizing that something fundamental and foundational is happening here. At the root of the universe is a marriage, the marriage of heaven and earth, of God and his bride. On the level we're dealing with here, Isaac is heaven and Rebecca is the earth, which is connected to the feminine. The name Rivka, Rebecca, means to hobble or to bind. This is what all physicality does, this confining and containing of the spiritual in a finite vessel. It's actually the woman's special gift to be able to make that vessel. Isaac means laughter, which is a product of escaping boundaries. Rabbi Aaron Raskin says, the entire creation of the universe is about the marriage of Yitzhak, Isaac, to Rivka, Rebecca. If we're looking for the theme of marriage in the Torah, this first Jewish marriage stands out as particularly important. Now, Sarah became the first Jewish bride, but, and so this is, you know, Rebecca's mother-in-law, uh, but she wasn't Jewish yet when she married Avram, as uh, they had not yet been called out of Ur. So that wasn't exactly a Jewish wedding. It is here with Isaac and Rebekah that we have the first Jewish wedding. So the portion begins with the passing away of the first bride and continues with the beautifully brave second bride. And in a way, this is picturing for us a kind of 
development process of the bride. Notice that these two stories are placed back to back in scripture and are explicitly linked. Isaac is comforted in his mother's death by the arrival of Rebekah. The first passes away to make room for the coming of the second. Let me say that again. The first passes away to make room for the coming of the second. Are are you thinking of our situation here, by the way? Um, So let's take a small rabbit trail here for a minute. Why do we die? Okay, that's a big question, right? Uh, One important reason we die is to make room for the next generation, a generation that will go higher with God than we did. It is our final act of service and self-sacrifice to the next generation that we freely and graciously release our white-knuckle grip on this life. If we try to hang on longer than we should, we not only take more from this world than we should, but we might even end up squandering what we hope to pass on to that next generation. So this gracious stepping down at the end is exactly the heart of the half-Torah portion for Chayesara, which is the story from 1 Kings 1 of King David stepping down while still alive so that King Solomon can be firmly and clearly established in his place. You see, as King David got old, he got weak. And in that vacuum created by that weakness, a wrestling developed. And another of David's sons tried to elevate himself as king. But David was like his ancestor Abraham. Once he found out what was happening, he was quick to release his grip on the old life. In an instant, he made a decision to go from king of God's people to subject, subject to his own son. Can I just say that this is a lesson both of our political parties need to take to heart right now? This was one of King David's greatest acts, um, this stepping down. And I think that both the Democrats and the Republicans need to take a lesson here. There is a time for a politician to put himself into the fray, and there is a time when he or she gets older and a bit slower and weaker, and he needs to release and let the next generation take over. So beyond the idea that the theme of the bride is of great importance in Scripture, My second point is that this portion is very much about the need to release the old life in order to embrace the new. Sarah must pass before Rebecca can come. And it's not hard to see this spiritual energy of of the time reflected in the autumn season around us, especially in Ohio, where it happens very beautifully. We walk outside and the very air says to us, You have to embrace death for the sake of new life. The wilted impatience are whispering about a kind of spiritual breaking taking place at this time inwardly by God's design. If anyone has been to to my house, they would know that I love green and plants. And there's one small uh, wall in my house. And of course, all the walls in my house are small because I have a small house. But there's a one wall with a picture window. It's literally covered in plants. And so in the fall in Ohio, I watch the leaves outside begin to brown and yellow and flame out and then drop. And 
if I can be just a little bit melodramatic, I feel like my little companions are leaving me. Uh, and two, I have a, an unusually long driveway, and I don't look forward to shoveling it in the winter. <laughs> but the point is that as much as there is new life in the fall, in terms of the grain crops in Israel, death is also a part of this season. Grant often would tell us that death is the doorway to new life. So even as the ground is being readied for the seeds in Israel, you can see some leaves turning color and falling even there. It's not as dramatic as it is here in Ohio. But in Israel, many of the vines, like many, the many grapevines that are planted there for wine, and some of the trees, like the figs and the pomegranates and some oaks, are losing their leaves. So in Israel, leaves are falling and the new shoots are coming up from the ground shortly thereafter. In the beauty of God's poetic design, it is the decaying fallen leaves that nourish the young grasses as they shoot up. The death is not in vain, and the legacy of a life lived according to God's plan continues long after death. So beyond these couple of points about the theme of the bride, you know, being an important one in Scripture, and the need to embrace that death so that we can walk into the new life, I want to make a couple more points quickly before turning to a connection to Joshua that grows out of this Torah portion. The first is to point out how strongly Abraham tells his servants in chapter 24 of Genesis, whatever you do, don't take my son back to my country and family. Once we have begun in this deeper walk, this walk of intimacy and marriage with Hashem, this life of elevated service to each other, we must guard ferociously against the temptation to go backward. It may get more difficult, and likely it will get more difficult, but going back to the old way is simply not an option. So, third point, don't look back. My final point here with the Torah portion is to say that I always, I always find especially encouraging this story of the finding of a bride for Isaac, especially if we're thinking about the time of year we're in. At this point, we may be a bit discouraged, discouraged as we begin to sense the enormity of the challenge ahead, the vast amount of work to be done growing up into the bride of the king of the universe. We might be thinking, who can do this? Right? But here in this story, he whispers to us each year, it is I that chose you. Just like it was I that chose Rebecca for Isaac, I chose you as my bride because I know you can rise up to the challenge. Are you going to argue with the creator of the universe? I say that you are strong enough and you are brave, as Rebecca was, to leave everything she knew to start a new life in the promised land. So my last point here is be encouraged because he chose us for this. Okay, I don't think he got it wrong. Let's move now to an application to the book of Joshua. Regarding the releasing of the old life, it's quite easy to see in the book of Joshua that Israel is giving up one life for another, a life of higher self-sacrifice within the body. The wilderness may have been uh, limited in potential, but it had become comfortable, known, predictable. 
it's easier to get manna handed to you than it is to do the digging and the planting yourself. So this is point number one. For a second point, we're going to take a bit of a deep dive. If you lose the thread or don't have an interest in it, just tune out for the next five minutes. Okay, we're going to kind of try to go deep here. But there are some important insights that can be found here through one little place mentioned in the Torah portion. And it's a place that we'll see in Joshua. What we're trying to do is become familiar with the various types God gives us to work with. The language of the universe and of scripture too. All the metaphors and shadows around us. This includes metaphors connected to seasons and geography and our bodies, for example. And metaphors connected to certain numbers. Right? God is speaking to us with all these symbols. Why did he put it all here? Why does he write it in his word the way he writes it in his word? Um, It's God's language. And if we want to hear him speaking, we need to learn his language. And if we have a better idea of the larger structure of creation, the story of Yeshua in creation, we can start to tease out these metaphors more easily. So the place I'm talking about is Kiryat Arba, city of four, where Sarah dies and is buried. Later, it gets the name Hebron or Hevron, and both the early name, Kiryat Arba, and the latter name, Hevron, are used here in the Torah portion and also in Joshua. So in Joshua, we see that Caleb um, is specially granted this territory, Hevron, Kiryat Arba. This is where the cave of Machpelah is even to this day. This is where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah are all buried, three couples. It's kind of amazing to think about. And tradition adds that Adam and Eve are also buried there, uh, making four couples. And some make this connection of four couples to the name City of Four. Arba is four. So when I hear City of Four, it makes me think City of Physicality. And when I hear Hebron or Hebron, it makes me think Spirituality. So this place is first, particularly strongly physical, and second, later, very strongly spiritual. It is both an intensely physical and intensely spiritual place. And this intensity is one reason that it is such a contested city, even today. It's a bit dangerous to go to Hebron, and uh, it's uh, something that the Jewish people themselves don't even do very easily. So... Um, Let's explain the physical and spiritual connections to these names, starting with the second, the spiritual name Hevron, because that's the easier one. Hevron means association or, or society. It's related to the Hebrew word for friend. It's the idea of coming together, unifying. So this is an essential quality of the spiritual dimension, this unity. It's the physical um where we find separation and death. The spiritual is about life and unity. And Hebron is also one of the highest cities in Israel, if not the very highest. A height is by its nature spiritual, which is why heights naturally become places of worship. Again, we're we're thinking about how can we better understand the different pictures God has given us, including the geography, including numbers, like city of four, including places. So, Um, heights naturally become places of worship, and that's often pagan worship, unfortunately. 
as we ascend a mountain, we are all pushed toward a single point, a, a point of unity, which is the summit. So now let's turn to city of four, Kiryat Arba and physicality. I find this fascinating, these different connections. But first, let's note that the city is named for giants, humans of unusual physical size. The city is first named for Arba, called the greatest man among the Anakim, which is a race of giants. In fact, Arba was the father of Anak, we are told, apparently the one for whom the Anakim are named. So Kiryat Arba is also where the patriarchs and matriarchs are literally put into the earth, their bodies hidden in the shadow of the physical ground. And there's more. The number four is associated with the physical world. It is used in such phrases as the four winds or the four corners of the earth. We talk of four fundamental building blocks of creation, earth, water, wind, and fire, And four can also be understood as the three dimensions of space that make a cube plus time. So, right, you have your X, Y, and Z axes that make up three-dimensional space, a cube, plus the fourth dimension, which is time. Three plus one makes four. Um, These are what define the physical realm. So, point number one, this special place, Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, has a name that speaks plainly to physicality and a name that speaks plainly to spirituality. And the Bible often uses both names. But these are not just unusually clear names. The place is known for extreme physicality first, physical giants, then extreme spirituality second, the spiritual giants of the patriarch and matriarch couples. My point here is that you don't get a Hebron without first having a Kiryat Arba. They go hand in hand. Um, It wasn't a mistake that it was named Kiryat Arba. That's intentional. This place is really talking about a marriage, a marriage between the physical and the spiritual, the earth and the heavens. It is a marriage in which the spiritual comes to have authority over the physical. And so the name Hebron is the stronger name in later history. But both are necessary. Notice, though, that even though the spiritual name Hevron comes to dominate, the place comes to be defined by marriage, couples, the bringing together of the left and the right in harmony. In other words, the physical is not snuffed out and replaced by the spiritual. No, the physical, Kiryat Arba, is married to the spiritual Hevron, and the two together are known chiefly by the spiritual name which is Hevron, which is closer to our identity. Without the spiritual, the physical is inert, lifeless. A rock is a rock is a rock. On the other hand, a spirit without a body has no way to act in the physical world. The two need each other, right? They have to be married to each other. And this is my point. The more we are able to engage and master the physical, the more physical tools are made available for the spirit to do its work, its good work in the physical world. The cleansing, this cleansing and engaging of the physical, by the way, is particularly connected to the winter. So this topic is one of the main areas of clarity that Judaism has to offer Christianity. So hear this now. Maturity 
is not about shunning the physical world. But as we mature, we more and more embrace it. First by conquering it, then by partnering with it. One of the unique aspects of Judaism is that Judaism does not generally teach shunning the physical as a way of life. Like many traditions do, including some strains of Christianity. There are some in Christian history, like the ascetics, who have taught that we should lock ourselves away in a stark cave and push down and ignore the physical, which they see as competing with the spiritual. Judaism says no. God made the physical world for a reason. If we ignore it, we're setting aside his purposes. We are meant to fully engage this physical world and thereby empower the spiritual and also elevate the physical. If we are stuck in a cave filled with knowledge but penniless and disconnected from everything, we aren't going to do a lot of changing in the world. Again, rather than suppressing our physicality, we are to conquer it, cleanse it, and use it to the fullest in the same way that God cleanses his bride before partnering with her to bring forth life. In cleansing and embracing the physical realm allotted to us, including our bodies, our land, our resources, our ma'od, we take hold of our inheritance. We are wedded to our physical bodies and our land. In a very real way, Israel is wedded to the land. So we're talking about a marriage between Israel and God above, but in another sense, Israel is also married to the land So in in this relationship, Israel is the bride, but in the relationship with the land, Israel is the groom. So anyway, that's just something to keep in mind. In Joshua 14, we will see Caleb inherit Hebron, this special portion of the promised land. I mean, imagine, not only does he get to live in the land of promise, but he gets one of the holiest places in that holy land. What a privilege. Do you know, though, what the name Caleb means? Caleb means dog. In a way, this is a a pretty low name, a name that leans toward the left, toward the physical, in the way that a a dog does. However, if you read his name as Kol Lev, it means wholehearted, which is, in fact, the defining inner quality of a dog. This wholehearted devotion to the master is the spiritual inner dimension um, is that's why we love our dogs, right? This wholeheartedness um, that they have toward their master, whether you're a good master or a bad master, you know, they're going to love you anyway. Um, so this wholeheartedness in pursuing God was the key to Caleb's greatness. So the very name Caleb has these two extremes within it, a kind of marriage, a balance of two extremes, truly Hebron is the perfect inheritance for Caleb. Caleb seems to have been a Gentile who had a giant Jewish heart. Um, So he gets Hebron. We can see in these various examples of dual names or two sides to one name, the same phenomenon that we see in the names Jacob and Israel. Jacob means heel grasper and is the first and lower name. Jacob is a kind of physical, earthly means of navigating in the world by grasping at the heels. Israel, on the other hand, means one who wrestles with God. This, too, is a way of navigating the world, the more spiritual way. 
of recognizing that our struggles here are really struggles with God in disguise, as Grant has taught us repeatedly when teaching Jacob's story. Both of these names are used for Jacob in the Bible because they both have their place in the life of the believer. We just need to make sure that Jacob is rectified by having Israel rule over Jacob, the spiritual in control of the physical. Then the Jacob way of moving in the world can be turned to good purposes. Finally, let's bring this discussion around to Yeshua. Our new elder, Daniel McFarlane, mentioned at our family meeting on Sunday an important moment that illustrates Yeshua's attitude toward the physical stuff of earth. Daniel read out a portion from Watchman Nee called the alabaster box, referring to the box that Mary broke when she was anointing Yeshua before his death. That precious and expensive box is used up, broken, and its even more expensive contents, too, are poured out on the Lord. And when this is called wasteful, Yeshua says, no. The way Mary used the physical world for great spiritual purposes was exactly the way we are to use this stuff. Yeshua did not shun the physical. He did not tell the apostles to go live in a cave. At the same time, he did not go after physical things like a material throne or the kingdoms of the earth, which he was offered when he was tempted in the wilderness. He didn't even have a home. In fact, He had many warnings about how the material world can trap us, but he didn't push away the physical either. He wasn't distracted by physical needs, but he used them. Like when he used the opportunity of hunger to teach something profound at the feeding of the 5,000, he took what God had made available in the moment, blessed it, right? They found seven loaves and a few fish. He took what God had made available in the moment, and he blessed it, and it was enough, miraculously more than enough. He didn't get swept up in the needs of the physical, but he didn't ignore them either, and he used them for kingdom purposes. He ruled over and utilized the physical with perfect balance and to great effect. And on an even deeper level, we see in Yeshua himself the marriage of heaven and earth Yeshua is both God and man, and this is important because he is the emissary, the word, that brings the earth back into relationship with God. In one way, Yeshua is like Eliezer, or the servant of Abraham, the matchmaker. uh, The emissary needs to be a picture of the goal, okay? You need to look, you need to be able to look at the the emissary, the angel, whatever, and be able to see what, what the goal is, what the message is. Therefore, Yeshua is within himself, both God and man. Was Yeshua married? He was married within himself, God and man. And so he is uniquely qualified to mediate the marriage between heaven and earth. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you were able to find something useful and encouraging in this teaching. I know I've been blessed preparing it, and uh, may he... Bless you in your Shabbat discussions and interactions, and may he make us all into the people he wants us to be. Shalom.